I'm Liz Sauer, and this is Ghosts in the Burbs, a podcast of ghost stories from Wellesley, Massachusetts. A warning, adults who use adult language told me these frightening tales, these ghost stories, aren't for kids. We've finally arrived at our high holy season. I've missed you all. Thank you for your patience during the hiatus. Though I wasn't transcribing interviews, I was busy. I wrote the complete story of Claire and the Three Witches of Wellesley during the break. Claire's story wound its way across several episodes of the podcast. It unfolded in bits and pieces, her influence ever-present when I wasn't even completely aware of it. So during the break, I took the chance to pull it all together. Much of it'll be familiar to you, but I didn't tell you everything. Claire is now available on Amazon in either paperback or ebook form. I intend to release the audio version, read by me, to Audible on October 7th. I'll be sure to let you know when it goes live. Find all the links on ghostsintheburbs.com. Stay tuned after the ghost story for shout-outs, t-shirt information, and a spooky short story. Now, enough with all that. We're on to ghost story number 39, The Cave. I hesitated. No, I don't think it's a good idea. You haven't heard anything other than dead people, though, right? Biddy pressed. You say that as if it's no big deal. Don't be dramatic. Just because I haven't heard a demon talking to me doesn't mean that I can't or won't. I huffed. In this town? Betty snorted. No chance. Wait, I take it back. I did hear a demon. I heard it growl when I was at that house in Maine with Judith. Betty shrugged. What's a little growl? I just stared at her. Look, she said. It's not my first time meeting the woman. I did an initial sort of evaluation, and she wasn't too wonky. The church wants me to record her story. That's strange, I said, surprised. The church is really interested in this woman's history and what happened to her. I'm sure you've noticed the uptick in demonic activity, right? Betty said, eyebrows raised. Well, the church is trying to connect the dots and figure out its origins. Instead of putting out all these little fires, they want to be proactive and find out if there's any way to stop the infestations at the source. The source? What do you mean, hell? Biddy tisked. No, not hell. Someone is pulling the demons up at an alarming rate. The woman we need to interview was a part of something as a child that opened doors to the other side. The church wants to know how they did it why they did it, and if it can be undone. I looked at her, nervously. Come on, she insisted. What else do you have to do tomorrow while the kids are in camp? I was going to go to a spin class. Biddy was silent for a beat. I'll pick you up at 9.45. I climbed into Biddy's Jeep to find a venti soy latte with one shot of vanilla waiting for me in a cup holder. Thank you, I said, smiling. Don't mention it. I think this woman lives over near Dana Hall. You haven't been to her house yet? No, I met her at the church. 
my radar went on high alert. Is this woman possessed? No, Betty said slowly. Then what exactly is going on with her? Nothing now, anyways. She was a part of a meditation experiment when she was young. Fucking Swellsley, I breathed. Honestly, how do all of these weirdos end up here? Speaking of, did you read the Swellsley report this morning? No, let me guess, another coyote sighting? No, it was something in the blotter. A woman called the police because a bunch of kids did a ding-dong ditch, and when she opened the door, they threw food at her. No, I said, laughing. Oh, I would have been so pissed. Betty agreed. I would have chased those little fuckers down. I'm sure you would have, I replied. Here we are, Betty said, pulling into a long driveway. She parked in front of the garage. We both stared at the stately brick home in front of us. If nothing's going on with this woman, then why did she reach out to the Catholic Church? Biddy shrugged. Maybe she wanted to clear her conscience. You know, confess. You think I'm going to hear something, don't you? I said. You could, but I sincerely hope not. Look, you're better at this than I am. You get people to open up and this woman's a tough nut. I think I might make people defensive. I snorted. I really don't think you'll hear anything bad, Betty said, seriously. But if you do, then we'll just leave. Deal? Deal, I sighed. Biddy kept staring straight ahead. Besides, I can't imagine there are many dead people hanging around demons. I turned to face her. She took the key out of the ignition. I have holy water she said dismissively, and opened her car door. I followed suit, curious, despite my fear. We crossed the brick walkway in silence. As Biddy reached out to ring the doorbell, the front door swung open abruptly, causing us both to jump. There, gazing down at us with an accusatory glare, stood the pretty pony, the woman I'd met a few weeks prior at a friend's 40th birthday party. I fought with all my might to maintain a pleasant, neutral expression. I was going to call, the woman said, stepping aside to let us into her home. You're a bit late. Biddy made a show of looking at her watch. By two whole minutes, so sorry to keep you waiting. This is my colleague, Liz Sauer. I smiled and shook Pretty Pony's outstretched hand. I'm Tippy Sloan. How do I know you? You look so familiar. Do you do Pilates at Lifetime? I shook my head. We met at Amanda's birthday party. Tippy looked at me skeptically. Then, oh, right, you have a blog or something. I nodded. I mentioned Liz in our last email. She documents paranormal occurrences in Wellesley. You want to put my story on your blog? Tippy asked. I nodded and said, only if it's all right with you. I would change your name to keep you anonymous, of course, but I don't have to publish your story if you prefer that I didn't. Tippy chewed on the inside of her lip for a long moment. No, it's fine. I can't imagine that many people I know read it anyway. Your friend I met at the party does, I pointed out as evenly as I could. So does Emily. They don't know anything about my past. No one here does, not even my husband. Tippy snapped. All right, then, as long as you're fine with it, I'll publish the story. 
I'm fine with it. Okay, I said, feeling defensive. The woman was a tough nut. Biddy and I followed Tippy into her chef's kitchen for an espresso, and then out to her deck, which overlooked a pine tree forest. I was asked to leave any details about the house out of this story, but I can say that it felt as if the place had just been staged to go on the market. The home was flawlessly decorated, and it was so spotless, I wouldn't have been surprised if the cleaners had left just moments before we arrived. We sat in wicker chairs with patterned cushions around an immense white stone pedestal table. Though the humidity had been brutal all summer, there was a slight breeze and the pine forest smelled fresh and cool. Are you hot? I can turn on the fans, Tippy offered. Biddy and I assured her we were comfortable, though I was intrigued by the retro white metal things placed unobtrusively at either end of the deck. If the bugs come out, I'll turn them on. Tippy said. Biddy took a digital recorder from her bag, and I asked if it was all right if I recorded the interview as well. Is that really necessary? Um, I'll only use my recording to transcribe the interview, and then I'll erase it, but Biddy, you need to give yours to the church, right? Biddy nodded. Tippy shifted in her seat, agitated. Promise me I'll erase it. It's fine if the church has a recording, but I don't want another copy floating around. I kept from pointing out that publishing her story on my blog would create a public copy of the tale. I'll erase it immediately, I assured her. That settled, the recorders were switched on and placed on the table. Tippy stared at the devices. Her elbows rested on the chair arms, hands folded lightly over her flat stomach, legs crossed. So you want me to tell you about the church? Please, Biddy replied. Tippy took a deep breath and tilted her head back to look at the black and white striped umbrella shading us from the sun. Blowing out the breath, she fixed her gaze squarely on me and said, My parents became official members of the Church of the Fallen Star in 1984. Uh-oh, I said, without even really meaning to. Biddy gave me a look. Sorry to interrupt already, but Fallen Star, isn't that another name for Satan? Yes, but as far as I can tell, my parents didn't know that. I honestly don't even think that most of the congregation knew what the church was doing behind the scenes. Where did you grow up? I asked. I don't want you to write that, okay? The Catholic Church already knows, right? So I don't want to say the name of the town on the recording. Tippy looked at Biddy for reassurance. That's totally fine, she said, soothingly. I apologized and made a mental note to stop interrupting the woman so much. No, it's fine. I just wouldn't ever want someone to read your blog and get the stupid idea to go looking for these people, okay? Okay, I affirmed. All right, fine. So the thing is, for the most part, this place was just like any other church. My sister and I attended Sunday school while my parents were at service, and we had picnics and volunteer hours and spring carnivals. But then the fall of my freshman year in high school, the church began offering meditation classes. The reverend's wife ran the sessions. She was this mousy little woman with short curly hair and big glasses. She never wore makeup, and she was like the most harmless-looking person you could imagine. 
No one could have suspected what she was up to. My parents were happy I was spending more time at the church, and they had my little sister sign up too, even though she was a couple years younger than everybody else. Not many kids at the church were interested in meditation, so there were only six of us in the class, and we met twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, after school. I had another question. I didn't want to jump in again, so I sort of raised my hand. Yes, Tippy said with forced patience. Uh, how old were you guys? I was 14 and my sister was 12. Anything else? I shook my head and snuck a glance at Biddy. Her subtle look let me know that she also thought Tippy was a complete and utter jerk. The so-called meditation class was pretty boring at first, just a lot of breathing exercises and sitting still. But then Mrs. Crow... The reverend's wife? I interrupted, not caring anymore if it annoyed Tippy. I wanted to be sure I had all the players straight. Yeah, Eliza Crow, the Reverend Liam Crow's wife. She began to teach us about visualization, but not the kind where you visualize yourself like reaching a goal or doing something you've always wanted to accomplish. She told us exactly what to visualize, and her instructions were detailed and specific. She referred to it as taking our nature walk. That sounds pleasant, I said lightly. It was at first, Tippy said quietly. We'd begin by imagining ourselves in a pretty field of wildflowers. We were to take in every detail, the way it smelled, the buzz of the insects, the feel of the breeze, etc. Then, once we'd all arrived in the field together... Um, I said, interrupting again. What do you mean, arrive together? It's hard to explain. We'd sit together to meditate, and Mrs. Crow would lead us in the visualization, and eventually we could all see each other in the field. Then, once we all tuned in enough to make contact with one another, Mrs. Crow would turn our attention towards this huge mountain range off in the distance, and we'd begin walking towards it together. I glanced at Biddy, and she gave me an almost imperceptible shake of her head. She asked, What happened when you reached the mountains? Well, that actually was a challenge at first. For a while, it took a really long time to get to them. But then we somehow realized that if we sang songs together, the journey was much quicker. What songs did you sing? I asked, imagining church hymns. Tippy smiled sadly. We took turns choosing the songs. Like every 90s church girl, I was embarrassingly excited about Amy Grant. My sister loved R.E.M., but this one guy in the group was obsessed with the Beatles. And when we sang those songs, we got to the mountain in record time. Crazy, I said. What happened when you arrived at the mountain? Betty asked again. As we got closer to it, we began to make out the cave entrance. Oh no, I said out loud without meaning to. It wasn't as bad as it sounds. As long as we went in together, the creatures stood back in the shadows and just watched us pass. I laughed nervously, and Biddy gave me a look. I've never told anyone about this, but I realize it's a lot to take in, Tippy sighed. All of that visualization of the field and the journey, it was just to get us inside the cave. 
I don't know why we had to take that route every time. Like, why couldn't we just imagine ourselves in the cave from the beginning, right? But that's just how it worked. And once we got good at moving through those initial steps quickly, we spent the majority of our time together in that cave. What went on inside the cave? Biddy asked. We met the elder. He was the whole point of the exercise. We went to the cave where he existed, and we would listen to him talk for what felt like hours about the state of the world and the role he wanted us to play in the future. He didn't, like, live in the cave. He told us it was just a meeting point, a place where our realities could coexist. He said he had information that he'd been asked to pass along to us about our role in what was coming. What did he tell you was coming? I asked, nervously. Tippy sat silently for a moment. I honestly can't remember any of the details, but it was all about what he called the end, and it filled me with absolute dread. This went on throughout the fall of my freshman year, and then one day it changed. When the elder was done talking with us, we always left the cave together and traveled back out the same way we came in. We couldn't just pop out of the meditation and be back in the church with Mrs. Crow. We had to travel through the tall grass back to the field of wildflowers, and up until that point, I'd always felt safe. But for some reason that day, I glanced behind us as we were leaving the mountains. I don't know why it hadn't ever occurred to me to look back before, but when I did, I saw the tall grass behind us rippling, as though something was moving through it, following us. Then I glimpsed one of the things from the cave, crouched down, scurrying on its hands and feet like an animal, and I realized that the grass was teeming with them. I panicked and started running towards the field of wildflowers, and my friends began yelling and running with me, trying to get me to stop. Then they began to panic when we all realized that, though we were sprinting, we weren't getting any closer to the field. That had happened on the way to the mountain, of course, but never on our way home from it. It finally occurred to me to start singing. I began screaming the lyrics to Yesterday, the only Beatles song I could think of. The others caught on, and then, just like that, we were back in the field of wildflowers, and Mrs. Crow was calmly telling us to awaken. I told her what I'd seen, and she tried to brush it aside as my imagination. The others were freaked out, too, but they were scared at how hard it had been for us to get back to the field of wildflowers. None of them had actually seen those creatures following us. We'd all caught glimpses of them in the cave before, but in that dim light, you couldn't see how horrifying they actually were. I couldn't convince any of them that what I'd seen was real. Tippy shivered at the memory. I quit right there and then. I told Mrs. Crow that I didn't want to be a part of the class anymore, and I swore to myself that I'd never go back again. But I was only able to stay away for a week. One afternoon, I got home from school, and the Reverend was there, sitting in our living room, talking to my mom. He'd been telling her all about the elite catechism Melanie and I had been involved with. He told her that Eliza, his wife saw incredible potential in me and my sister, and that he'd hoped I'd return to the meditation and stress management course to further my studies. The reverend caught my mom off guard, so she was embarrassed that she didn't know I'd been skipping the class. My sister and I hadn't told either of my parents anything about the class, and they hadn't asked about it either. Melanie was still going. 
And while she was there, I hung out in the church parking lot doing homework until she came out so we could walk home together. She was mad at me for not going, and I was angry at her for not listening to me. My mother promised Reverend Crow that I would be back in class that very next day, ready to participate and continue the course. But they couldn't make you meditate again, right? I said, hopefully. Of course they could, Tippy snapped. What we were doing was not meditation. We were entering an alternate reality, or maybe it was a parallel reality. I don't know. Whatever it was, it didn't depend upon me wanting to go there. I'd already traipsed through that place enough time that it left its mark. When I was around the others, all it took was Mrs. Crow's gentle voice describing the field and inviting us to enter, and I would be there right alongside my friends. Spending so much time in that place did something to me. I can't speak for the others, but it must have changed them, too. I began to know when something was going to happen before it did. Like what? Biddy asked. I can't prove any of this, of course, but I began to be able to predict things. I knew that my father would break his arm fishing. I knew before we went to the grocery store that they would be out of the brand of bread we usually bought. I knew my best friend's grandmother was going to die on March 3rd. Things like that. The elder began to tell us things, and instead of forgetting them the moment we came out, I started to remember them, faintly. It was more like I remembered the gist of what he was talking about, and what he was talking about was the end of the world. And he told us that we were helping to usher in a new dawn. Eventually, instead of just hiding in the shadows, the creatures would gather around behind us as we sat listening to the elder preach. It became apparent that specific creatures were assigned to each of us, and they would sit cross-legged right behind each of us as we listened to the sermons about the end times. They began to always follow along behind us in the tall grass, but none of the others found it at all alarming, or if they did, they didn't let on. Tippy was silent for a moment. I didn't grasp how serious it all was until the reverend began a meditation course for our parents. He said it was a special curriculum that the church was planning to roll out to the congregation, and we were the lucky chosen families to get first crack at it. After a few weeks, we were given instructions to meditate as a family. I hadn't told anyone that I was beginning to know things before they happened, and I hid how terrified I was because my parents and my sister were all so happy about the whole thing. I could tell my dad was proud that our family had been chosen to take part in the Reverend's project. Things weren't as intense when we meditated as a family, but then we were invited to meditate with the entire group in the church. Mrs. Crow called it a special evening of relaxation and spirituality. Tippy rolled her eyes. We all entered the field. We walked to the cave. We sat and listened to the elder. But on our way back out, one of the creatures jumped onto Mikey's back. He was the boy who loved the Beatles. It happened so fast, I almost convinced myself that I hadn't seen it. The creature jumped onto his back and then sort of disappeared into him. When Mrs. Crow called us out to awaken, I immediately looked at Mikey, who was sitting across from me, in between his parents. I asked if he was all right, and he looked down at his hands and started opening and closing them into fists. Then he looked up at me and began to laugh.
The laughter caught on until everyone in the room, except me, was laughing, as if they were all in on some kind of a joke. Over the next few weeks, people in the group, parents and kids, got jumped like that. By all outward appearances, they were the same. If you didn't know what had happened to them, you might not suspect anything was wrong. But inside, they were completely different. Cruel and cunning and determined to be positive and productive. Those became the buzzwords. Positivity and production. Those creatures took them over, pushed their personalities aside, and were in complete control of their bodies. I was terrified. I tried to suggest that there might be something strange going on in the meditation group, but my parents wouldn't hear it, and my sister said she'd tell the reverend if I kept bringing it up. It was as if they were all under a spell, I couldn't get through to any of them. Out of the six kids in the group and the 12 parents, I was the only one who seemed to think anything was wrong with the whole thing. So I did my best to push down the terror I felt and fall in line. Reverend Crow told us at this one meeting that he was so thrilled with our progress that he was going to make the program available to the entire congregation. Having been the first group to make it successfully through the program, he said we'd be a part of spreading the positivity. He intended to split the congregation up into six groups, and each of our families would be in charge of leading a group through the process of visualization and meditation. My mind was spinning. I knew that more of those creatures would escape through those innocent people. My family hadn't been jumped yet, but I knew it was just a matter of time. And that very night, a creature jumped my father. After that, I kept my mouth shut about my doubts. I could tell he was watching me, almost daring me to say something against the process. I made up my mind to leave about a week later when my little sister was jumped. I hated the idea of abandoning my family, but really, they weren't my family any longer. I didn't know if they were trapped in their bodies with the creatures or if the creatures had completely eliminated all traces of them, but I wouldn't let it happen to me. I ran away in the middle of the night with a backpack of clothes and $112. I was 15 years old. Where did you go? I asked. Tippy met my eyes for a moment. Then she looked down at the table. Here and there. I eventually ended up in a stable situation, so I was able to get my GED. I put myself through college, working as a receptionist at a law firm, and that's where I met James, my husband. I haven't spoken to my family in over 20 years. I subscribed to our hometown newspaper online, and I saw an obituary for my father about two years ago. I'm so sorry, Biddy said sympathetically. Don't be. That man wasn't my father any longer. What about your sister? I asked. The mask of bitchy detachment Tippy wore cracked for a moment, and a glimmer of sadness broke through. I try not to think of her. What about the church? Betty asked. Any news of it? Have you heard of... Text in brackets. Church name omitted. End brackets. Stop it. No, I breathed. Tippy nodded her head. They've gone megachurch. There's no stopping them. They have a podcast, I said, shocked. 
persuasive, aren't they? Were there any after effects when you left home? Did you escape completely? Betty asked. My dreams have never been the same, Tippy said with a humorless laugh. I dare not allow myself a quiet moment to reflect. If I do, I find myself thinking about that field of wildflowers, and that's dangerous. What about the premonitions? Biddy asked. Sometimes, Tippy replied quietly. Biddy looked at me meaningfully. What? I asked, defensive. Have you heard anyone? Oh, no, not at all. At least not today, but, um, listen, I said hesitantly. I would feel weird not telling you this. I can sometimes hear people, um, who've passed. Tippy looked confused. She can hear dead people, Biddy said bluntly. Tippy's eyebrows raised. Oh? Yes, and that night at the birthday party, when we were talking in the backyard, well, I heard a man's voice tell me she's right about her husband. I couldn't think of any tactful way to let you know what I'd heard, you know. I don't want to overstep or comment on your marriage at all, but knowing you now, I would feel guilty if I didn't tell you what the voice told me, I rambled. I glanced at Biddy. She was staring at Tippy anxiously. Tippy sat frozen. What did the voice say? It said, she's right about her husband. Sorry, it's so private. I just wanted to pass along what I heard because... I trailed off. Tippy's hands had begun shaking violently, and the look of sheer terror on her face was enough to shut me up. Oh my God, she breathed. Oh my God, they're here. She began rocking back and forth. I should have known. I knew it. I knew it was all too good to be true. I knew they'd never let me go. Tippy, Biddy said sharply. What are you saying? The woman smiled horribly, clutching her hands to her chest, tears springing to her eyes. The affected tone had gone from her voice. He's one of them. What if the voice just meant your husband's cheating on you? That's how I took it, I said like a complete idiot. Tippy shook her head violently. No, no, I saw a text on his phone last summer from a man named Derlish. It was only numbers, and I began to suspect something was up. He'd started at a new gym, and he knows I abhor meditation, but he'd begun trying yoga classes. They got to him. Oh my God, what am I going to do? I can't start over again. I have children. Biddy tried to calm Tippy down, saying we really had no idea what the voice I heard was referring to. What did it sound like? Tippy demanded. The voice, what did it sound like? Oh, um, it sounded like a man. I'd say an older man, actually. Tippy threw her hands up and exclaimed, It was my dad. The voice you heard, it must have been my dad. He's safe. Now that he's dead, he must be safe. Oh, thank God. Then she buried her face in her hands and began to sob. I looked over at Biddy and mouthed, What the fuck? She just shrugged and shook her head.
The long sleeve baseball t-shirts are available once again on Custom Inc. I've relaunched the campaign for October. Go to ghostsintheburbs.com for the link to those shirts. There you'll also find the link to Claire on Amazon in both ebook and paperback form. And again, come October 7th, it will be available on Audible. A very heartfelt thanks to Marina Salea and Suzanne Chapman for your incredibly generous support on Patreon. And thanks to another Patreon supporter's generosity, I have a short story to share. Growing impatient, Lori Goldenthal called to her dog, who'd been sniffing at something at the water's edge. Gage, come on, let's go. The dog shifted, but didn't comply. Gage, she called again, exasperated. This time, the dog didn't even lift his head. Lori pulled her hood down and braced herself against the steady spit of rain. She made her way through the tall weeds towards Lake Wabin. They were only halfway around the trail that circled Wellesley College's picturesque setting. She slipped and fell on her bum as she tried to get down a short ledge to a narrow piece of shoreline where her dog was intently investigating something. The evening was darkening. The pair had walked this route weekly during the summer months, but she hadn't counted on Autumn's shorter days when they'd set out that afternoon. They needed to get going. The last thing she wanted was to get stuck on the secluded trail in the dark. Thoroughly annoyed, her pants soaking wet and muddy, Lori said the dog's name again. He glanced back at her briefly, but continued his inspection. "'What are you doing?' she demanded, praying he wasn't nosing at a dead animal. She grabbed his collar and pulled him back and away from his interest. He'd been investigating a Barbie doll, and a rather fancy one at that. It was clothed in a poofy pink ball gown, a sparkling tiara on its head. "'I see you found one of my beauties,' a deep voice called from behind her. Gage let out a low growl. Lori spun around and looked up at a man in black sweatpants and a red windbreaker. Your dog didn't touch her now, did he? Oh, uh, no. No, I don't think so. He was just sniffing it. Her, the man corrected. Lori stared blankly. Her name's Julie. Oh, okay. Well, we've got to get going. Glad you found your doll, Lori said, trying to keep her voice steady. Julie, the man corrected. Right, Julie. Which direction you headed? He asked. Lori didn't want to say. You going to the college? Um, yes, Lori answered. Gage had his head down, his fur raised at the nape of his neck. Lori hooked the leash to his collar. Well, why don't you grab that little beauty for me and hand her up? She's going to need a bath tonight. The man snorted with laughter. Lori leaned down and grabbed the doll never taking your eyes off the man. Here, let me give you a hand, he said, offering to help pull her up the bank. No, thank you, Lori said firmly. Suit yourself. Looks like you're going to need a bath, too. Frightened, but unwilling to show it, Lori scrambled up the embankment and dragged Gage along with her. She thrust the doll into the man's hand and said, Which way are you going? He studied her for a moment. Well, I was thinking about exploring that way. Lori pointed in the opposite direction. Have a nice walk, 
We're going that way. That's a shame, the man said with a small smile. Lori didn't reply. She marched steadily down the path, then once she'd put some woods between them, she began to jog, Gage happily clomping along beside her. She was convinced the man was behind her the entire time, but she didn't allow herself to turn back to look, intent on covering the mile-plus back to campus as quickly as possible. Joyfully, the pair emerged from the wooded trail and rushed back to the safety of the parking garage. By then, it was close to full dark. Drenched, Lori fumbled with her keys, and something on the ground next to her car door caught her eye. A small pink high heel lay on the concrete. A Barbie shoe. She ushered Gage into the car and climbed in behind him. Slamming and locking the door, she jammed the key in the ignition. She braced her arm against the passenger seat and turned to look behind her as she began to back out of the parking space. She screamed. The man was there, standing behind the car, his red windbreaker illuminated and glowing in the backup lights. She hesitated just a moment but didn't let up on the gas. If this freak wanted to play a game of chicken with her, he's going to lose. This has been Ghosts in the Burbs. Good night, sleep tight, and don't forget your nightlight.